Well, please do find Paul's letter to the Galatians again, and this morning we come to chapter 4, verse 12, through to chapter 5, verse 1, page 974 in the Black Church Bibles. Galatians chapter 4, reading from verse 12, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment, literally a weakness of the flesh, that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my flesh was a trial to you, you didn't scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you, if, if possible, that you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I'm again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I'm perplexed about you. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Well, let me ask you a question I found rather soul-searching from time to time. Do you still enjoy being a Christian? I wonder if you think of church as a place full of generally happy people or as a place that is only for the anxious and the burnt out and the downtrodden. 
when someone visits us here at ENC, will they be struck by our joy, our excitement, our enthusiasm to be here together, coming around Jesus? Now, sometimes life can be very sad. We don't always have to put on a fake smile. Some of us are just a bit gloomy by nature. We're Eeyores, not Tiggers. That's okay. But I think if our general attitude to church and to the Christian life has become a little joyless over the years, then we ought to pause and ask ourselves a few searching questions. I wonder what attracted you to Christianity right back at the beginning. I think the friend who led me to Christ was one of the most joyful people I'd ever met. I had a pint with him this week. He's older now. He's got a lot more cares on his shoulders. But really, he is just the same. And what struck me when we first met was that he would get so excited, ridiculously excited, any time he got the chance to talk to me about Jesus, just to bring up his name. And for whatever reason, it was a joyful thing to listen to him. I, I couldn't explain it. I just loved to see a man like that full of joy. And eventually, I went to church with him, and I drank in more and more and more. Wasn't it something like that for many of us? Perhaps you can think of older Christian friends who are starting to find life increasingly hard to bear. And yet so often, the thing which stands out a mile is how joyfully they endure their struggles compared to so many others. And it should be a joyful thing, shouldn't it, being a Christian? Look at the poem Paul quotes in verse 27. It's the song of a barren, childless mother who is bursting with joy at God's wonderful promise of kindness. But for the people Paul is writing this to, I don't think church was a very happy place to be. Once it was, once these Christians were full of hope and love and enthusiasm, but something's gone wrong, hasn't it? Look at what Paul asks them in verse 15. What's become of the blessing you felt the day I brought you the gospel? Or as some Bibles put it, what has happened to all your joy? Perhaps you feel sometimes like asking the same question. It, it seems like the joy has begun to leach out of your Christian life. And instead, you think of all the church rotors you've got to remember and all the prayers you haven't said this week and all the people you've let down. And if that's you, it might not be for the same reason as these Christians, but perhaps it could be. So it's worth listening to what Paul has to say. You see, the attitude troubling the churches of Galatia had the effect of cannibalizing Christian joy. And actually, that is rather surprising because the attitude Paul is talking about is one that's all about focusing on our own needs, the things we think will bring us joy. What he's going to show us this time is that religion is not just a way of trying to save yourself to feel accepted and closer to God. Actually, at its heart, religion is often all about serving yourself. These people troubling the church in Galatia, although they look very pious and Jewish and devout, are actually driven by their own need for approval and security and popularity. And that is the attitude which in the end robs you of any true gospel joy. 
It's the attitude that Paul calls slavery. But because by nature, these hearts of ours are curved in on ourselves, it's an attitude that very easily starts to creep up on us. So today, Paul is going to compare that attitude to the freedom his own gospel brings. And although that word freedom normally sounds quite abstract and idealistic, Paul is going to ground it very practically in his own life and ministry. What does it mean to be free? Well, verse 12, it's to become like me, says Paul. What we've got here is an extended exercise in compare and contrast. Paul's ministry with the ministry of the troublemakers. Paul's freedom with the slavery of the troublemakers. Two points then for this morning. Two ministries, and then there are two mothers. And behind those two ministries, behind both mothers, we'll find two very different masters. Let's start then in verses 12 to 20 with two ministries, one which serves Christ and one which serves self. And strangely enough, it's the one which serves self which ends up robbing us of true happiness. Now notice the key word of this whole passage. It's a word we love in Scotland, isn't it? Freedom! This is all about freedom in contrast with the slavery that Paul was talking about last time. Now, he doesn't actually use that freedom word until right down in verse 22, when he suddenly starts to hit us with it in almost every verse. But before his Braveheart moment in chapter 5, verse 1, Paul's going to show us what real freedom looks like. And that's why he begins this section by saying, become as I am. It's taken me a long time, I think, to grasp how absolutely central Paul's own example is in this letter. He is our living picture of real freedom. So what does it mean then to become like him? Well, think back to the very first thing Paul told us about himself in this letter. Really, the only thing he's told us. It was chapter 1, verse 10. I'm not seeking the approval of any man. It's Jesus Christ who I serve. I think that is the definition this letter gives us of real gospel freedom. And to back that up, just look how it makes sense of everything in this paragraph. What Paul does is contrast his joyful ministry of freedom to the ministry that's unsettling these Christians in Galatia. And in line after line, you see that Paul's ministry is entirely focused on Jesus. But theirs is all about serving human opinion, serving their own flesh. That's their master, and that's what it means to be a slave. What's Paul's goal? Well, verse 19, it's for Christ to be formed in these young Christians. He longs for this church to be secure in Christ. What's their goal? Verse 17, it's that the church makes much of them. They want this church to make them feel secure in themselves, to validate them and their need and to need them. They want them to depend on them. Two competing goals then these ministries have. So how are they going to get there? How are they going to achieve those goals? Well, Paul's methods are very straightforward, aren't they? 
He didn't come to Galatia making much of himself because he wasn't the goal. He came and made much of Jesus. And that meant coming, verse 12, right alongside them. He became as they were. He didn't need to stand aloof and hide in the vestry and make them all feel small and insecure. No, he was in their homes. He was eating around their tables. In fact, he came literally weak in the flesh, verse 13, probably having been beaten up by ministry elsewhere, looking ill and pretty unimpressive. If anything, he was a revulsion to most people. Literally, verse 14, his flesh was a temptation for them. He was so far from the pious, photogenic preacher that actually it was a trial for them not to reject him. And yet what they saw in him, verse 14, was Jesus Christ. Isn't that an encouragement to you and me when we feel totally inadequate for Christian ministry? And even now, as Paul pours his heart out in worry for them, notice he is all about Jesus. He doesn't make it personal, verse 12. It's not me you've wronged. No, it's Christ who matters to Paul. Of course, they have hurt him. They've hurt him very badly. He's hurting like a mother in labor right now because they're walking right away from his gospel. But for Paul, it wasn't about Paul. And that meant that if the loving thing to do was to tell these Christians some hard truths, well, verse 16, he was able to do it. Of course, he didn't want to lose them, but it wasn't their approval that he needed. Those were his means. What about them? Well, when your goal is to validate yourself, the way you treat other people becomes insincere because you can't let them see your real motive and you can't let them outgrow their need for you. So while Paul is willing to say difficult things, the troublemakers are terrified of making enemies. They would never say anything that might hurt or put people off following them, even if sometimes, as a leader, the thing that a person most needs to hear you say is the thing that's true. Instead, verse 17, these leaders would flatter the Galatian Christians. They make much of you so that you make much of them. That's always the easy way to win over a disciple, isn't it? If you want someone won over to your side in the ups and downs of church ministry, the easiest thing to do is to make them feel a little bit special. We're the serious group of Christians, just a little bit more deep, a bit more thoughtful with the Bible. And I can see you would get a lot out of that. There's something about you, I can tell, that means you'd fit right in. Come and be a small group leader at our church. Notice, though, the real motive in verse 17 they want to shut you out. That's how a ministry based on self-validation works. People are what you need. You have to acquire them. And so people become far too precious to you for your sake and not theirs. So you keep the fellowship tight and exclusive. It's heavy shepherding. You're reluctant to let go of people, so if they won't get on board or they want to serve in another way, you make the pressure very personal. Make sure they know how sad and hurt and disappointed you feel. 
And although it seems like you're including them in your clique, the truth is you're shutting them out from confidence in the gospel, from maturity in Jesus. To join this group of troublemakers was to be excluded from the real church. Two ministries then, and Paul says, become like me. What did freedom look like for Paul? Well, it looked like someone who loved, who longed to be able to change his tone. He hated having to say the things they needed to hear, but he could do it because he didn't depend on people loving him back. He could afford to be truthful with them, to lead, because he wasn't there to make followers and friends for himself. For Paul, it meant freedom from personal hurt. Yes, he was injured and upset, but ultimately, it was because Christ was losing people, not him and his clique. It meant freedom to serve Jesus and encourage the church to find security in Jesus because he didn't need them all to himself. And that's medicine, I can tell you, as a pastor, I've needed to take from time to time. Sometimes as leaders within our church culture, we can let ourselves slip into a habit of ministry miserabilism, and it can rub off on the church. Just a little too much self-pity about how hard real ministry is, how full of nonstop battles, how different it is to any other Christian's job. Often it's those of us paid to hold out the Christian life who seem to spend the most time moaning about the Christian life. But if that is the mindset I live in, ministry miserabilism, what does it say about where my joy comes from? Paul says hard things. He faces real costly battles, but it's not that which justifies him or makes him secure and happy in his ministry. In the end, Christian service that is really about self-saving and self-serving only ends up destroying our love for the gospel. So let's spend a moment, shall we, to think through what freedom would look like in our own areas of Christian ministry and service. And then I hope we'll start to see why it's the only way to real joy. Why are we Christians so prone to getting burnt out and exhausted and disillusioned with service? Why do we so easily start to feel unappreciated and negative about everything at church? Well, one reason might be that we've started to see our ministry, our serving in church, as a way to validate ourselves, a way to look valuable in each other's eyes and in the Lord's eyes. Think about what real freedom from that might look like for someone who leads diggers on a Sunday morning or serves on the welcome rotor or spends their time outside chatting to visitors and passers-by. Surely for anyone involved in Christian service, any of those, the real joy comes when you see a light bulb going off in someone else's mind, someone else waking up to Jesus. Even if you're coming in early to set up the sound, that's why you're doing it, isn't it? I'm pretty sure it's not because... Martin and David have a strange love for cables and speakers that they get in early every week to do that stuff. It's because they love what comes out of those speakers. They'd love others to love it too. I've not yet found anything in the world more special than that moment 
when someone grasps what it means in some way to follow Jesus. And the reason that moment is so beautiful is that before your eyes, you're seeing Christ formed in someone else, a kid in your group or the person washing up dishes next to you on a Sunday evening. It's like witnessing a child being born in Paul's language. But that moment would never be so special if you need it to feel good about yourself, if it's not about that new life. What about the times when it doesn't happen, when progress is hard and discouraging, when you invite someone to church and they just change the conversation, when you plan something at women's growth group to bring your friends to and no one shows up? Well, like Paul, you are going to agonize over that. Paul's heart was being wrung by these Galatians, wasn't it? But again, notice the difference that freedom makes. Paul's heart was wrung for Jesus' sake. But that's a sort of agony which energizes. It spurs you on to keep trying. When our motivation starts to slip away from Jesus and towards validating ourselves, then that sort of agony has a very different effect. That's the sort of agony which leads to burnout and discouragement. Because we take the pain so personally. It's my failure. It's me who missed out on the recognition. When people let Paul down, he was able to say, it's okay. There's no bridges burnt. You did me no wrong. But when we need people to make much of us, it'll be very different. When they let us down or they move on, we'll make the pressure very personal. When we aren't appreciated, we'll feel personally slighted. And when we're praised for staying late to clear up or leading the group well or for preaching a decent sermon, we'll take the praise very personally too. We'll start to look for it more and more, depend on it more and more. Freedom is thinking of Christian service like a son thinks of doing something for his father. Slavery thinks of ministry much more like an addict waiting in the queue for his methadone. You're anxious that you won't get what you need. You're defensive of your rights to get it. You're touchy about any change to your dose. Anytime someone questions your way of doing things, it feels like an attack on you. And so Paul just needs to take one look at this poor, unhappy church, and he knows something is badly wrong. What happened to all your joy? Well, having spelled out the difference between those two ministries and how they affect the church, verse 21 to the end exposes what lies behind them. And I think this is the most ingenious moment in this whole letter. Really, Paul has made his case now. He's going to spend the rest of the letter applying what real freedom means in the life of a struggling Christian. And we'll come back to that next time. But first, he sums up his whole message to the Galatians in 11 punchy verses. Now, we could have done that by going back over all the dense, meaty theological ground that he's argued so far. Instead, what he does is tell them a story. But it's the sort of story which Jesus was the master at telling. One of those stories with a brilliant sting in its tail. Not just a story of two ministries, but two different mothers. 
Okay, he says, you lot who are so keen to go back to more outward Jewish religion, verse 21, let's listen to that, shall we? Let's listen to the Old Testament. Because in one way, you troublemakers are right. There always have been two classes of people in the religious family. Yes, verse 22, Abraham did have two sons, the kosher one and the half-brother. But you've got them back to front, my friends. Now, in case your Old Testament is a little fuzzy, the story that he's telling here is the story of Isaac and Ishmael. God had promised Abraham a son through whom the whole world would be blessed. But Abraham and his wife were childless and old, and humanly speaking, their chances of having a son of their own seemed completely laughable. And so in desperation, Sarah persuaded her husband to take things into his own hands. He slept with Hagar, their slave, and that is how Ishmael was born. But of course, God didn't need their help. And a few years later, the son he'd always promised was born to old Sarah. Now, God dealt kindly with Hagar and Ishmael, but his promise was never going to come through their human ways. Ishmael ended up as the father of countless Gentile races, but Isaac was the father of God's people, Israel, and it was always going to be that way. So you can imagine, can't you, how Jewish Christians thought of that story. It's one thing to become a Christian, but the real blessing is for Isaac's people, not for the half-brothers. It takes more than a few words to join his family. You've got to become one of us. But hold on a minute, says Paul, because what mattered in that story was never genetics. It wasn't being born through the normal human way. In fact, that's how the slave was born. Ishmael, verse 23, he was born according to the flesh. They didn't trust God's promise, and so they took things into their own hands. It was a human, this age fix. But Isaac, the free son, he had a supernatural birth. It was grace. He was born through God's incredible promise. That's what makes an Isaac. Now, verse 24, let's take a step back from the story and think about you lot. Because to me, one of you looks a lot like Ishmael, the slave. One of you is clinging on to Mount Sinai. You're going back to a, a twisted version of Israel's law and trusting in that obedience to win God's favor. And doesn't that sound an awful lot like those old human ways of trying to win God around. And so there comes the sting in the tale. Who's the mother of your pious, mature Jewish Christian troublemakers? Who's the mother of these people so proud of their ties to the fancy church in Jerusalem with all its rituals and traditions and reliance on the flesh? Verse 24, she is Hagar. To insist on pure-bloodedness on Jewishness is actually to be a half-blood, a slave. He looks like a brother, but the truth is he comes from another mother. And you can tell because he relies on his own human resources rather than the loving kindness of his heavenly father. But to trust God's promise and nothing more, that is to be an Isaac. Isaac. 
the legitimate son. Verse 26, the spiritual Jerusalem is what he's hoping for. His hope of God's coming kingdom. And that is how it's always worked, isn't it? That's how God's people have always hoped. And so in verse 27, Paul quotes a beautiful passage from the book of Isaiah, a verse that almost makes you want to cry. It's a passage about captives in exile, lost in Babylon, without any human hope. And it compares them to old mother Sarah, this barren woman who's lost any hope of having a child of her own. And Isaiah says to those captives, it's okay. Trust God's promise because there is enormous joy just around the corner. He told them about a suffering servant whose cross would end their exile and open up a whole new age. And in the very next breath, Isaiah 54 verse 1, he sung these words, Rejoice, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of the one who had a husband. And of course, those supernatural children that Isaiah was talking about were these Galatians and millions of us like them. Every child who would ever be born into this family by trusting God's promises. Sarah laughed for joy the day that Isaac was born. And it's as if in verse 27, Paul pictures this old woman laughing all over again, wiping away the tears from her cheeks as one by one, she sees these Gentiles joining in her big family. I guess she'd be laughing with joy today, wouldn't she, to look around at us. All these people in this culture of all cultures here on a Sunday morning because they want to hear about Jesus. A room full of Isaacs, full of Sarah's children. Where in the world are we seeing Sarah's children right now being born faster than anywhere? Well, it's in Iran, Persia, the literal captives in Babylon are joining the heavenly Jerusalem every single day, adding to this family. Isn't that something to laugh over? There's joy for us. So listen up, brothers, Paul says to his troubled Galatians, it's not the strong, it's not the fertile or the proud who grow God's family. They might look like sons, but they've got the hearts and souls of slaves. Whereas you lots are children of promise, wherever you came from. But there is something very important you need to know. Within God's church, there have always been two types of son, ones who trust him and ones who trust their own flesh, Paul's ministry or theirs. In fact, every human being is either an Isaac or an Ishmael. And right from the start, verse 29, one of those has belittled the other, just as these fancy Jewish Christians are belittling you right now. That's how Ishmael persecuted Isaac back in Genesis 21. He laughed at him, laughed at the idea that God would bless the world through one little child from a decrepit old mother. And yet Isaac inherited everything. Because as we've seen all along, there is only one kind of seed, those who belong to Christ, heart and soul. John Stott makes a very perceptive comment here. Listen to this. The persecution of the true church is not always by the world, who are strangers, unrelated to us, 
It's by our half-brothers, religious people in the nominal church. It's always been so. The greatest enemies of evangelical faith today are not unbelievers who, when they hear the gospel, often embrace it, but the church, the establishment, the hierarchy. He's right, isn't he? It's us religious people who can hate the gospel with the most venom because the gospel will not let me put myself at the center. And so Paul's application is obvious, isn't it? You don't need what those intimidating Christians have got. In fact, the truth is they desperately need you. That's why they flatter you and draw you close. It's because, in fact, they're in slavery. So why on earth, verse 1, would you put yourselves under their yoke of self-reliance and human approval and joyless, crushing religion? That is everything Christ came to free you from. Either cast out the slave, verse 30, or let them shut you out of his kingdom. That's the message. Friends, we need to be very wary of a Christian ministry that seems fixated on itself. If a Christian writer spends more time defending himself than arguing for the gospel, it's probably time to close the book and read someone else. If every other church is too compromised to partner with, if all that matters to a church is the numbers in its congregation or the success of its church plants or the glitz of its programs, then it's probably time to ask questions. If a pastor seems more worried about his name or his reputation than the work of growing Abraham's family, then it's probably time to look for a new one. Is he in the agony of childbirth, longing for Jesus to be formed in his flock? That's not a hypothetical question for us now, is it? What sort of minister should we be looking for? We've got some dear friends with the same number of kids as us, but for them it's always been disgustingly easy. She would practically sneeze by number three and four and out popped another baby, and she'd be getting on with life again. But you don't want a pastor like that, do you? Some things shouldn't be easy. Seeing Christ formed fully in the people you love, wrestling over the Bible with them, that's something worth agonizing over. The essence of dead Galatian religion wasn't a real love for God and his law. It was a teacher's love for himself. That was slavery. And what a joyful, liberating thing it is to be free of all of that, to agonize over Jesus instead. A few years ago, we watched a couple that we love a lot going through the struggle and grief of trying to conceive a child. And through all of that, they said something once that really seemed to embody for me this kind of joy. They were talking about how deeply the nurses and doctors they saw just wanted to be able to help them. And my friend said this, they shared our sorrow, those staff, and in the end, they shared in our happiness. I think that captures something of where real joy in Christian service should come from. If you and I serve Christ, then we have the sheer privilege of seeing sons 
born out of barrenness and despair, born out of God's sheer goodness and grace. It's not about us, and that's the whole beauty of it. We don't need to be validated and appreciated. He loves us too. And so every job done by every Christian, yours, mine, the celebrity preacher, it's a job God has given us for a time to do out of his mere good pleasure. And the joy of that is something we will never know while we're still slaves to our own service. If Christ is the center of our hope, our confidence, our ministry, then his joy becomes ours to share. Just remember how full of joy Jesus is. We don't always think of him that way, do we? The most joyful man that ever walked. Trees clap their hands with joy at the sight of him. Heaven sings with joy over him. Sinners cry tears of joy over his feet. There is no one else with more joy to share. So is it yours? Let's pray. Father God, we are so, so thankful of the blessing we felt when you included us in your beautiful family of grace. We are so thankful that we found our place, not through our flesh, but through your promise. So help us, Lord, to live free of that need to feel accepted and well thought of, and to live instead for the sheer joy of serving your Son and seeing him formed in one another. For we ask it in his precious name. Amen.